as we are reminded of what Jesus went through and celebrating his death and his resurrection and that he is our king and he is alive and he's alive today. And so I invite you to stand and let's worship him because he is alive. See the tomb where he lay, see the stone rolled away, he is risen, he is risen, he's alive. See his hands, see his feet, touch his scars and believe, he is risen, he is risen, he's alive. Oh. Breaking free, hear the song of the redeemed. He is moving, he is moving, he's alive. So take this freedom, take this love. Can you feel the rising up? He is here, he is here, he's alive. He Jesus, He lives. 
or not because you catch us every single time and we can completely put our trust in you and we can lean on you we can run to you when we run to you your name is a strong tower you are the rock of our salvation a secure one that we can build our life on your word and know that it's built on a solid foundation and it's not going to slip or slide or move away. But you've given us your word. You've given us your promise. You've given us your Holy Spirit to live in our lives, to help us, and to uh, be with us each and every moment of every day so that we can uh, have days that are filled with joy always, that are filled with love filled with our trust in you. Because I'm leaning leaning safe and secure from all our 
would, open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We continue journeying through the Bible. We began this journey back in 2015. And I had Rachel take a look at the schedule. Lord willing, the creek don't rise unless he comes back. We're going to be finishing our journey through the Bible the end of March of 2024. <laughs> We're there, but we got a lot to cover still. Yeah, and it's been, it's been a great journey in teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And, and some of the books we did cover on Sunday morning, uh, we have finished our Acts study. And we're going to be moving through some topicals after Easter and being able to uh, take a look at what God's doing. And I'm working up a a series um, on discerning the voice of God that we'll pick up on. So it should be pretty cool with that. Tonight we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. 18th century commentator Jay Bengal described this section, this section of Galatians 3 on, as the sum and marrow of Christianity. And what does he mean by that? He means basically this principle that we are declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. One of the dangers that we run into and that the Galatians were running into, the churches in that region of Galatia, were people were trying to add to the gospel message. They were trying to add to it. And and we covered previously in chapters 1 and 2 where Paul was defending his, his condition as an apostle against the zealous Judaizers, these Christian Jews that were coming around behind him, and they were trying to add legalism and Judaism to Christianity, to the gospel message. They say, well, it's all well and good that you're saved by grace, but, you know, in order to be really complete, to be a full Christian, that you've got to obey the, the Mosaic law, and you have to be circumcised. Kind of a big deal to Gentiles who really are considering this, going, really? You mean there's more? Then Paul didn't tell us the whole gospel, and so there's this challenge of kind of questioning what you've been told. And so with that, Paul's making his argument into what we would call the theological section of the letter. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, they kind of go together, we're not going to do them all tonight, where he makes a series of arguments that pertain with... Uh, why it is faith alone, Christ alone. That we can't do anything to add to our faith. That, well, let me ask you this. Is Jesus sufficient? Is His death enough? Absolutely. And the minute we start adding works to that or any of these other things, then we say Jesus is not enough. So we're going to look at five arguments tonight in Galatians. Um, If you're one that takes notes... The first argument is going to be in verses 1 through 5, and it's the argument of conversion. It's the argument of conversion where Paul's going to argue from the position of, how were you first saved? The second argument is going to be the argument of covenant, where he's going to reach back and he's going to take a look at Abrahamic covenant. And what came first, the covenant with Abraham or the law? And and so it's that position the primary of the the covenant that's there. Then he's going to give an argument from the position of Christ and the cross in verses 10 to 14. And then he's going to give an argument of of the promise, the priority of the promise in verses 15 to 25. And then the argument of sonship that's going to be in verses 26 to 29. 
So you want to pay attention. There's going to be a lot of truth that's going to be there. And hang on to those nuggets as God delivers them via His Spirit. So let's jump right into Galatians 3, beginning with verse 1. In the very kindly, fatherly words, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want you to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? So Paul sets up this contrast to begin with, and in the beginning statement, in verses 3-1, he would say, O foolish Galatians, or J.B. Phillips, in his translation, says this, O you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you cannot be so idiotic. That's what he's saying. You're a bunch of idiots. Say, Thank you, Paul. Now, he loves them because he calls them brothers later, but have you ever met somebody that is doing something really Dumb? Is it okay to call somebody out for being dumb? Yes. When, when they're being really foolish or idiots. And, and so, like I said, Paul loves these people, but he, he rebukes them. And sometimes an open rebuke is necessary. It's a mark of love. He loves them, but they're being very foolish. Do we have foolish people in our society today? Maybe one or two. But we're so scared to call them foolish or call them idiots. When what they believe is a lie, when it's an out and out lie. We should call them out, not out of anger or bitterness or judgmental, but out of love. Because if they continue believing the lie and move further and further away from the truth, then they move further and further away from God, because God is truth, and God is love. And these believers are departing the truth. And in departing the truth, what they're really doing is they're departing the truth of God's Word. Question, what happens when you leave the centrality of the truth and God's Word? What happens when you start deviating from the the Word of God? Devastation. Devastation. And you believe all kinds of uh, truth. And you will actually shipwreck your faith. You'll still have it, but you're going to be on the rocks. And so within this, Paul calls them foolish. And he says, who has bewitched you? Which literally means to give somebody the evil eye or to cast a spell. To uh, create some type of spellbound on them. Who has bewitched you? Who has brought you under their spell? Now, we think about that. Who gets brought under a spell? The immature. The ignorant. People that don't know the truth. He's talking to Christians. Can a Christian be brought under the spell or the deception of the evil one and be drawn away? Absolutely. And they could believe the lie and ignore the truth that is before them. 
And Paul calls out and he says, who has held you spellbound? Well, he knows who. It's the Judaizers. But he's bringing that out to them, saying, look, at you are being deceived with that. And he calls out the deceivers who are practicing, in a sense, this witchcraft of bringing a false doctrine into the church. And there are people that will bring false doctrines into the church. And they'll bring all kind of heresies. And, and to hold captive the simple-minded with that. And so we have to be careful. We need to know the Word. And so what he says is, Who's bewitched you? Note, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed, crucified. Paul in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, if you remember on his missionary tour as he went through Galatia, what did he preach? Jesus Christ crucified. Publicly. He publicly declared Jesus Christ crucified and they witnessed that teaching that is there. And he's asking them, how is it that you've deviated from the central truth of Jesus Christ crucified the thing which saved you. Within this, we, we think about that. How is it that someone can deviate from the simple work of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins? Well, when we start adding to it. When we start saying Jesus plus. Jesus plus works. Or Jesus plus baptism. Or Jesus plus giving money to the church. Or Jesus plus penance. Or Jesus plus praying to a saint, or Jesus plus wearing holy underwear, or whatever they want to give you. One simple truth. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Nothing to add to the sacrifice. Can I add anything to the simple sacrifice that Jesus made for me and make it better? No. If it needed to be added, don't you think God would have told us? But he didn't. It was believe in Jesus alone. And, and the sins are paid for. So he, he challenges them in this statement in 3.1. And then in, through 2-5, through five, he wants them to bring them back to the gospel. What is the rule if you get lost? What should you do? If you're lost out in the woods, you should stop and acknowledge you're lost. Right? And then if you are going to move someplace, go back to the last point where you know for sure where you were. Wherever that is. But first acknowledge that you're lost. What does Paul do? You're deviating. You're walking away. Let's go back. Let's go back to the first point. Whenever you get lost or you start questioning your faith or you try to wonder, am I on the right path? What am I doing? What is true? Go back to the original principle. How were you first saved? Go back to the origin of your salvation. The place of your, your, your salvation. So he asked them, this is the thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing by faith? So, receiving the Holy Spirit is equal to being born again. When a person has their sins forgiven, they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, right? So the Spirit comes in and dwells the believer. 
Now, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it through works or was it through faith? Go back to the simple element. How were you first saved? Did you work your way into salvation? No. So, one of the things you look for is, when I first received the Holy Spirit, when I was born again, what did I pray? God, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. By faith, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior and that you died on the cross for my sins. By faith, I believe in you, the resurrection of life. However you word it, it was an act of faith that was in that. And then the Holy Spirit enters the individual, the believer, and transforms them. What does He do? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So you'll confess your sin. The Holy Spirit baptizes you or places you into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is a spiritual work. It's not anything we do. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. I confess my sin. Sins are forgiven. Through what? I am placed spiritually by the Spirit in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that as Jesus died, so I die. As he was buried, so I was buried. As he rose again into newness of life, so I rise into the newness of life. Romans chapter 6. So we're given that, that new life as he baptized. And then third, he indwells us, seals us, fills us, and empowers us to live a holy life. In other words, from the point of, of conversion, the Holy Spirit is continually doing the work, sealing, filling, and indwelling you and empowering you for the work. Not anything you've done. We can't add to it. The Spirit-filled believer is a, a dynamic transformation that is done from the divine power of God, not by anything you do. And as Paul is bringing him back, he says, how were you, Gentile, godless, idolater, Galatians, how were you first saved? And they're going to go, by the power of God, not by anything I did. Okay. That allows us to be able to live that new life. In fact, he enables us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual work that transforms us. And in Galatians 4, 6, we'll cover it uh, in two weeks. Because you are sons of God, God has sent forth His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship empowered by the Holy Spirit. Religion is man's best attempt to get close to God. Through works. Relationship is God reaching down from eternity into this world to have relationship with man. And God does all the work. Nothing that we do. How were you first saved? By God's grace. So he's challenging the people to consider their past experiences. So here's a question. Why do people fall away from their faith? Think about it. Why do people fall away from their faith? I can tell you the primary reason. They move away from sound doctrine and sound teaching. 
and they start listening to the knuckleheads that are coming up with all kinds of lies and deceptions that are demonically motivated. How do we return? How do we return back to faith? Come back to the cross. Come back to the simple message of the gospel at the cross. If you know anybody that's out there that's wandering, that's confused, that's deceived in all these things, don't try to deflate the deception. Bring them back to the cross. Because that's where they have met Jesus. That's where they were first saved. Come back to the cross and start there. These Gentile believers were saved through faith. The Jewish proselyte people were trying to bring them back to works. And works never worked for the Jews, did it? Never got close. Their faith journey was faith through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we depart from God and we start trusting in works, we're not trusting in the Holy Spirit, we're trusting in ourselves, aren't we? Paul says, go back to the beginning. Go back to the basics. How did you first receive? Okay, go back to the cross. What does that mean? Go back to the cross. Go back to the simplicity of faith. How do I get my faith again? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I lost my faith? I lost my faith. I don't know how to get back to the cross. I don't know how to believe. I don't know that I believe. How do I get back to the cross? Paul said it very clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of Christ. People don't need your opinion. They need the words of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Some people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I've got church in the outdoors. I've got the church here. I've got my own religion. I call that hogwash. Because you are opening yourself to all kinds of ideas. Your faith is not getting stronger. It's getting weaker. Because you're not exposing yourself to the Word of God and to sound teaching. And Paul was very clear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How do I get back to the cross? Get back to the Word of God in some place where God's Word is being taught. Wherever that might be, God's Word needs to be taught. And so, I want to also be clear though. Faith does not come through the act of hearing. In other words, you're not coming and you're saying, I'm actively hearing, therefore I must have faith. No. Faith comes from the content of what you're hearing. Do you understand the difference? Just coming to church is not going to do it. It comes from receiving the content of what you're hearing and bringing it in and internalizing it. How do I know that? Because lots of times on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you're going to hear the Word of God and you're going to walk out and go, what did Pastor Curry say? I don't know what he said. I don't know. Faith comes from the receiving the content and taking it in. You know, there's a, there's a restaurant I found recently, Ruth Chris in Portland. Now, I can go in there and I can sit and I can smell the meat cooking and I can see everything that's going. And I can go to that great restaurant. But if I never take a bite, I'm going away hungry. 
You've got to devour the Word of God. You've got to bring it in. It's, it comes from the preaching and internalizing it and believing it. Faith comes from hearing and believing. Taking it in. Making it part of you. And Paul brings them back to this and he says again to them, verse 3, Are you such an idiot? Having begun in the Spirit, now you're being perfected in the flesh. And so he says this is ridiculous in verse 3. In other words, why, what sense does this make? If it's a divine work that only God is doing, how is it that you think that you can finish it on yourself? And finish it in your own merit? We, we can't do this. If, if you couldn't save yourself, how are you going to make yourself spiritually complete by works? Can you? No. You're an idiot. It's a spiritual work. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And so within this, then he asked him, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it of the law or by faith? And so within this, he says, look it. When you first got saved, you denied yourself. Think about these Galatians and their culture. Were they pagans? Yes. Idolaters? Yes. Fornicators? Yes. Drunkards? Yes. So then they receive forgiveness of their sins, and by faith they start following after Christ. So, to do that, they would isolate themselves from their society, to be called out from their society, and they weren't participating in all these things. Would they be persecuted by their friends and family in their community? Absolutely. Would they deny themselves of those things of the world? Absolutely. Would it be painful? For sure. And he says, have you suffered all of those things for vain? That you're just going to go back, you're going to throw it away? Within this, it doesn't make sense within this. And further, if righteousness could be gained through strict obedience to the law, don't you think the Jews would have got it right? But they didn't. They didn't. And if they didn't get it right, do you think if obeying the law would have saved you, then question. Why did Jesus have to come? If obeying the law was enough to save you, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did God send His Son? And if the law was enough to keep you in a right standing with God, then why did God send the Holy Spirit? You see how Paul pokes holes in their, their thinking? Because it was inadequate. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to the religion. Mind you, these are Gentiles. They're not even Jews. They're not even going back to a religion that's theirs. There's somebody that's trying to force a new religion on them. This Judaism. God gave the Spirit. God did do the miracles. And it wasn't for emptiness or vain. How did you receive it? By works of the law or by faith? And the answer is faith. Okay, argument number one. Done. Argument number two. From a covenant. Look at verses 6 through 9. 
Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures were seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Okay. Argument number two is the argument about covenant. And he comes back with Abraham. Why? Because Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of the Jews within this. Now, the Jewish zealots were demanding that the Gentile believers would have to obey the Mosaic law and be circumcised. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind. These are Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans, non-Jews, and you've got this group of men that are coming to another group of men that are saying, you know, in order to be perfect before God, you have to be circumcised. If you were a Gentile man, you'd be saying, say what? What do you want me to do? Well, in order to be perfect, you have to do that. Because it's part of the covenant that, that we believe in. If you want to be one of us, you have to be circumcised because it's a sign of the covenant. Question. Who was the sign of the covenant given to? To Abraham and to the Jews. When? Ah. Paul's argument starts taking shape. When you take a look at this, the problem is with this works-based theology is that they did not understand the timing of the giving of the covenant in Genesis chapter 12 and when God demanded from Abraham when circumcision would take place because they were not at the same time within this. And so Paul is breaking it down. But the first thing that we have to understand is when and how did Abraham receive the covenant? It says that Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him righteousness. Okay? God declared Abraham righteous based on faith. Because he was not circumcised yet. News. Guess what? Abraham at this point was not a Jew yet. He was a Gentile. His father was a pagan. An idol maker. He was not a Jew yet. The Jewish nation hadn't been born yet. It hadn't come into place yet. He's the father. He's the first. So he was an unsaved Gentile when God came to him. And said, Abraham, I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to give you this promise of this land. It wasn't until Genesis 17 where the circumcision is called out. It says, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What covenant? The covenant of Genesis 12. God gave a covenant, Genesis 12. Genesis 15, Abraham says, yes, I believe. What's the covenant? I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing. And all the nations are going to be blessed through your seed. Singular. 
seed, singular. Abraham believed in that covenant. And it wasn't until Genesis 17 that God said, and Abraham, as a sign of that covenant, then you'll be circumcised. What came first, circumcision or faith? Faith came first. Not a work. What is the covenant? It was a grace gift. Did Abraham do anything to deserve that covenant? Did God choose Abraham out of everybody and say, I'm going to give it to you? Absolutely. It was a grace gift. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation within that. In fact, in Genesis 12, 3, which is a snippet of the covenant, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And note, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know what's not in that? It doesn't say, and in you all the Jews of the earth will be blessed. It says what? All the families. Question. The original covenant, Genesis chapter 12, did it include Gentiles and Jews? Yes. All the families. Because there was no distinction yet. Which is powerful when you think about it. So when the Jews get all high and mighty and say, we are God's chosen race and holy people and all this other stuff, and they start doing it, they've forgotten the original covenant. And the chronological aspect of how that covenant was given. Abraham did nothing to receive the blessing. He just did it by faith. The patriarchal father of Israel, the first hero of faith. Abraham, the great Abraham, was a pagan, Gentile, uncircumcised. And God chose him. Now these Judaizers are coming back and they're saying to the Gentiles of Galatia, oh, you've got to be circumcised to be right. You see the argument? Abraham was not perfect. In fact, how do we know he wasn't perfect? Well, one, he assumed to know the will of God and he had a son with Hagar, right? Kind of messed up that one. Gave us the whole Arab nation. Which wasn't a bad thing because you're going to see how it fit God's plan in a little bit. But also, what did he do with Sarah, his wife, down in Egypt? Oh, she's my sister. What a great man of faith this is. When he went down to Egypt, when he shouldn't have. We think about the true children of Abraham. And the true children of Abraham are all people. All nations. Because Abraham fathered a son with Sarah, which would go on to be the Jewish race. And he fathered a son with Hagar, which would be the Gentile race. Within that. If we understand that these two branches all came from the same father with the same covenant promise. The same covenant promise to them. And while they they had a fork or a split for many years, when Jesus comes, has come, he's come to bring blessing both to Jew and Gentile at the same time. To all people. No difference between the two. So then anyone of faith is blessed the same way as Abraham's children are. Because they're all part of that blessing. What is the distinction to be a child of Abraham? Is it your race? No. 
a child of Abraham believes like Abraham. Simple word of God, I believe it, and it's accepted within that. So Paul redefined the the family of Abraham, including the Gentiles, distinguished by, note, faith, not circumcision. The true children of Abraham are children of God by faith, not circumcision. Paul goes on. In his third argument, the argument from Christ and the, and the curse and the cross. Take a look at verses 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, and the righteous man shall, note, live by what? Faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Talking about the law. Then Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that Christ Jesus is the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Faith. So we start out with a curse. Look at verses 10 to 12. As he argues this, this condition from, from the position of, of the curse and the cross, he says, for as, many that, for as many are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So, we know that the blessing of Abraham's simple faith of God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is now put in contrast against those people that say, it is written, therefore I obey it. Okay, fine. You want to go that route? We'll go that route. In the law, what is the requirement for righteousness under the law? 100% complete obedience to every aspect of the law without failure. Without failure. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy, chapter 27, 26, Cursed is he who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Covenant agreement. Mosaic covenant. Here's the law. Obey the law. Do you agree with that? Yes, we do. We will obey it 100%. Liars. Because you can't do it. Do you know anybody? Anybody? That is 100% in the totality of their lifetime obeyed everything in the law. One. Who? Jesus. But he's the only one. He's the only one within that. The picture that we're given here that, he, that Paul brings up. And understand this. As Paul's writing this letter, it's going to travel all over throughout Galatia. You know who else is going to read this letter besides the Galatians? The Judaizers that are spreading the lies. Embedded in this is a double message. Paul's writing to the Galatians, yes. But he's also writing to the Judaizers. Why? Because he wants them to realize their failure. So he brings up the debate. Not the debate. He brings up the event when Israel would come into the land between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. The twelve tribes in coming into the land would stand on either side, Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other. And they would declare on one side the blessing, you remember? 
And then they would declare on the other side the curses. Right? <clears throat> so they would say, blessed is the one that does this. Cursed is the one that does this. And they all agreed. So he says this. This was the legal agreement that Israel came in. And you can read about it if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy chapter 26 and 27. As the whole event that would come in. Now, within that, it required 100% obedience. If they had disobeyed one, they wouldn't be saved. We know that no one can do it, Jesus alone. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of it all. Therefore, it is 100% impossible to keep the law. At all levels, at all points. If, if you miss one-tenth of a percent, one-tenth of a percent, if you covet one time, are you guilty of the whole law? Yeah. Therefore, you can't be justified by the law. God does not grade on a curve. Can you imagine? Well, you know what? I'm going to take the average of all the people that ever lived, and we're going to see how well they did. I remember in school, teachers grading on the curve. I loved it when they graded on the curve. Not on percentages on the curve. Why? Because I went to school with a bunch of knuckleheads. And I just had to be a little bit smarter than the next guy. Because we were all kind of on that same boat. That says no. You missed one part? Guilty of the whole thing. And therefore, if you're guilty of the whole thing, then you're under the curse. And you can't be, you, you can't overcome it. Okay, great. Paul says, fine. If we're guilty of this, then we're under the curse and we can't perform it and we can't be righteous. So how do we have that curse removed? How do we have that penalty removed? Because Paul says, look it, here it is. Do you agree? Yeah. Well, the Jews would know that. Why? Because the whole sacrificial system was in, in created. Why? Because nobody could keep the law. So they had to sacrifice animals because nobody could keep it within this. And so within this, you, you can't abide by the law. You're not justified by the law. In fact, there is no righteous man because why? The righteous man shall live by faith. You, you can't overcome it. So what do we do? We need Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14, where he says this. Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law, having become the curse for us. We're all guilty. We're all under the curse of the law. We can't keep the law. So who's going to save us from the curse? Jesus, the Messiah, who would redeem us. You think about that idea of redeem. Redeem means to buy back. Right? You, you, you buy back. We have, we have our, our cans that we've got to turn in at 10 cents a pop or whatever the case is. You've got to buy it back at the value of it within this. And so Jesus would redeem us from the penalty of sin. How would He do that? How would He do that? How would He do that? He would have to put His self himself in our place and take 
our penalty. He would have to become the curse under the law so that He could give us His right standing or righteousness within this. The phrase, the righteous one will live by faith, is used multiple times throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. For example, in Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one shall live by faith. How did Jesus save us? He redeemed us. He became our substitute. And we believe and accept that by faith. Not by works. It's an amazing thing that God has provided this. And beyond that, he goes on. Christ not only redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us, because it says, curse is everyone who hangs on the tree. In fact, within this, it comes from Deuteronomy 21:23. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, He made Him, being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The law required perfect obedience. Are you with me so far? No one has completely obeyed the law. Right? So we're all guilty. Yet the law requires perfect obedience and a punishment for anybody that didn't obey. What's the solution? Only one who has perfect obedience that would be a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for all of those that have sinned. And so Jesus took our place and became sin. He received the curse that was due to us. He took the curse, which was death, upon Him so that we would become the righteousness. Jesus became the curse so that the blessing of Abraham would extend through Him to us. Remember the blessing all the way at the beginning. God is faithful to His Word and faithful to His promises. And it's through Jesus. Remember the blessing. All people will be blessed through you, through your seed. Singular. Who's the seed of Abraham in that? Jesus. Jesus. It's also read seeds, talking about the nation of Israel. But it's interesting because when you really study that, it's a singular. It's the promise of the Messiah. It's the promise of Jesus. That all people will be blessed through Abraham's seed, which provides the sacrifice, which maintains the pathway for the promise, and having paid that penalty. And it's through faith in Jesus alone. What kind of faith? The same faith as Abraham. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Nothing else. I don't have to work at it. Nope. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We take God at His word. So the argument from the cross is complete. The argument for Christ is complete. That Jesus paved the way. 
The fourth argument, the argument from the priority of the promise. Look at 15 to 21. It says this. Now, brethren, I speak in terms of human relationships, relations, and even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seeds, now it's plural, us. So, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, as to your seed, that is Christ, singular, that I am saying this. The law which came 430 years later, note that, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, Abrahamic covenant, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, and it's not, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we'll pause there for a minute. So one of the things that we've got to understand is the promises of God. Are the promises of God revocable? Do the promises of God go away? No. They're irrevocable, unchangeable. God does not lie. God does not change his mind like man does. And so Paul first addresses them as brothers. Notice he doesn't call them idiots now, which is good. But he says brethren. And he basically says in verses 15 and 16 that God's covenant cannot be changed. Now, why is that important? If I could change God's covenant by a religious law that I create, is God's covenant valid? No. That would make me greater than God. If I add anything and say, you know, God really didn't mean that. Doesn't that make me greater than God? We start with the premise that God's covenant cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It cannot be added to. Mankind cannot add to the covenant promise of God. Period. Done. In context, Paul is writing from a legal standpoint. It's a legal agreement. It would be like a last will and testament. In, in biblical times... If I made a covenant with you, I'm the originator of that covenant, and I am the only one that can break it or change it, because I made it. No third party or second party can come in and make any alterations to that, to man. So within this, the covenant was to Abraham's seed, singular, the Christological seed, Jesus, and that the seed would be a blessing to all peoples, Jew and Gentile at the same time. Now note the chronology of it, verses 17 and 18. It says here, and I'm saying this, which came 430 years later. When did the Mosaic Law come? 430 years later. Okay. Covenant of Abraham. Mosaic Covenant. Covenant of Abraham came first. 430 years later, Mosaic Covenant came to who? All people? To the Jews. It was the guidelines for operations of the Jewish nation as they would be a nation. 
that they would be separate from everybody else, that they would live separately, that they would obey Yahweh God, and so on and so forth. It was going to be the Mosaic Law and the covenant within them. When you take a look at the Abrahamic covenant, it's called a unilateral covenant. This is going to be a fancy word. So stay with me. Unilateral versus the Mosaic covenant is bilateral. What is the difference? A unilateral covenant means one person makes the covenant agreement and only that one person holds that agreement intact. If you remember when Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he said, I make this covenant with you. And then they cut the animals, they separated it. And God was going to pass through that, as was the custom, where God and Abraham, the torch, and Abraham would go through the animals. Do you remember that? But God said, no, Abraham, you go to sleep and I walk through it. Why? Because he holds the covenant to himself. It's a unilateral. Only God made the covenant. Only God enforces it. It was not between two parties. It was only one. Bilateral is two parties. Between who? God and the people. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's why in Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they both were saying the covenant together and agreeing to it. The primary covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. The tertiary or secondary covenant of how Israel would live as God's people was the Mosaic covenant. What Paul is saying, you cannot take this secondary or this tertiary lifestyle covenant and make it equal to salvation. Do you follow? Because the first covenant is the one that's intact. So the law cannot undo what I call the grace promise to Abraham. The law cannot undo grace. You don't remember anything else, remember that. The law cannot undo grace. It cannot add to grace. And it can't be changed. The grace gift of God cannot be changed or, or even achieved through obedience to the law. The law says, do this. It makes demands. Grace makes no demands and says, receive this. The law says, you must do this, and I demand it. Grace says, I'm not demanding anything, just receive it. That's the difference between the two. So it begs the question, then why do we have the law? Why do we have the law? Verses 19 to 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression having been ordained through the angels by the agency of the mediator until, note, until the, what? Seed, singular. Seed what? Of Abraham would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. And is the law contrary to the promise of God? Megenoa, or literally, may it never be, God forbid. For if a law had been given, which is, was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, notice the chronology, before faith came, 
we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which is later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, note, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, why is the law given? Is the law evil? No, it is not. Paul gives three questions. What is the purpose of the law? Does the law come in conflict with God's promise? What are the benefits of the law? First and foremost, the law is good. Why? Because I never would have known sin if the law was not given. You never know what was right unless you knew what was wrong. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 12, he says, What should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the con- Paul likes that statement. In fact, he says it 17 times. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So what does the law do? The law, first and foremost, reveals our sinful state that we know we need a sinner. Our Savior. I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So what should we do when we witness with somebody? Should we tell them about their sin? Absolutely yes. Tell them about their sin. Tell them that their sin is separating them from God. Tell them the fact that, that their sin has a punishment. It's called death. Tell them. You're dying. You are a dead man right now. But you don't have to stay dead because there's a solution. That God gives life. The law reveals our sinful state, our need for a Savior. And so within this, it leads us to grace. If I know what a wretched sinner I am, and that my works and obedience to the law is not going to save me, but God says, here's this gift of grace I'm going to give you, Am I going to keep working at the law or am I going to receive grace? I'm going to want to receive grace within this. And so as that that law was given to reveal our condition, it would act, and as Paul is writing, for the Old Testament saints as a babysitter. As a babysitter. What does a babysitter do? Watches babies, obviously. It's the substitute authority while the parents are gone. Not the real authority. It's a temporary authority that's there. What does the law do? The law would guide lifestyle for a temporary time and provide a temporary atonement in the animal sacrifices for a period of time until Jesus would come. It was only meant to be a tutor, to teach about sin. Every person prior to salvation is under the law, being taught that they're a sinner. That's important. We have gotten to a place where we don't want to call people sinners. We should, because they need to know their sin. But if they know their sin, then they'll be ready to receive a Savior. I need to know what I'm doing wrong so I can accept what is right. Is the law bad? No, it's good. 
Can I ever be saved by obeying the law? No. Who is going to fulfill the requirements of the law? Jesus. Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to note, fulfill them. Fulfill them. So this, this law was a temporary babysitter or mediator that would take up this role until Jesus would come. It was the mediator. Do you know what a mediator is? Legal term. It's the one that's in the in-between, right? It's the one that argues the case. Old Testament saints. I'm a sinner. God's holy. I need a way to be able to have a relationship with God. However limited it's going to be, I need a mediatorial agent in between me and God. What is it going to be? Animal sacrifices. Every time. And the priesthood. And the offering system. That's the mediator. But when Jesus came and fulfilled the curse of the law by dying on the cross, who became the mediator now? Jesus. That's why we don't sacrifice animals. We don't need to. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So within this, Paul asks, well then, is the law in conflict with God's promise? No, may it never be. Not in conflict. The law couldn't provide life. All it could do was provide a babysitter. It was incapable of giving life. It was incapable of giving grace. Do you realize that those that live under the law never experience grace? It's always works-based. Never grace. Never grace. It just reveals the condition. And God gave grace through the promise of Abraham, through Jesus, through the seed within that. And you say, well, the law is harsh. Yes, it is. It's stern, and it needs to be stern to guard over the child for those regulations within this. It's a disciplinarian. I need to know what the law is all about. I need to know the depth of my sin. Martin Luther would say this, with many whippings of the law, draws us to Christ. With many whippings of the law, draws us to Christ. We need to tell people the depth of their sin and the wages of sin to the fullest extent so that they will desire to be set free from that punishment within that. The last argument that he gives, 26 to 29, is the argument of sonship within that. Look at these last verses. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, as neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The last argument is this. And it's connected with the previous ones with the word for. For, as a result of that, you were under the tutor, but you're no longer under the tutor. All that have put their faith and trust. Does that mean universalism? Everybody saved? No. All who have faith. All who have faith. And place their faith in Christ within this. Are sons of God. 
Those that would tell you that everybody dies and goes to heaven and all dogs do not go to heaven, I'm sorry. Only those who have faith in Jesus Christ are sons of God within this. Because you've had faith alone in Christ alone within this. John 1.12 But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What was the problem? The Jews were telling the Gentiles, you were second class citizens. You're not really sons of God yet until you get circumcised. And Paul says, hogwash. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You are a son of God. You are a child of God. And don't let anybody tell you any different. Why? Because you are in Christ. How do I know that? Because he says you were baptized or placed in Christ. Baptism is always the symbolic action of transformation within that. It's a sign of faith. And in the last part of it, again, he reiterates, you are all one in Christ. It's interesting to me that the words he chooses. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That takes care of all the people socially. There is neither slave nor free man. That takes care of everybody economically. There is neither male or female. Notice there are only two genders, but it covers both. For you are all one in Christ. Spiritually. What is he saying? It doesn't matter who you are biologically or socially or economically. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, spiritually, you are one. In unity. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Who is that invitation for? Everyone. Will everyone receive it? No. But it's an open invitation. Within that. And if you are in Christ, then you are part of Abraham's seed and inheritance. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you the fact that your word is truth. And it provides to us a hope. Lord, we thank you that you give to us the assurance of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And when the deceivers come in and try to bewitch us, they come in and they try to add to the gospel message things that are not true. May we be reminded by you, Holy Spirit, of these words. That I am a child of God. And that nothing can, can separate me from that. And it's a free gift of, of grace that is given to me. And I'm set free. And as a child of God, may I live a life that makes you smile. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll close. Let the highest king welcome me. I was lost, but he brought me all his love for me. All his love for me. Who 
For joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-397. 4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.